The verse on my mind as I prepare to preach the word to you this morning is that uh, one plants, another waters, but God gives the growth. So let's cry out to him for him to do what only he can do through his word. Let's pray. Father, I feel as I regularly do that I am weak and also I am hopeful because you, your power is made perfect in weakness. And so, Lord, I pray that again you would display your power and your wisdom and your love for your people through helping me preach this word. God, I acknowledge, Lord, that one plants, another waters, and I hope to plant and to water in these moments, but I humbly acknowledge, Lord, that you alone give the growth. And your people know this. Lord, and so I pray that you would give the increase, that you would give the growth. Lord, that this word would be used of you to bring new life in the hearts that need it this morning. And Lord, that you would use it to grow and mature and deepen your people to be the kind of worshipers that a book like Habakkuk is designed to make. So Lord, get glory as you bring growth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, some of you are just joining for the first time today. We are at the very end of a sermon series on the book of Habakkuk, uh, this prophet. And um, there's kind of been a conversation going on in uh, the book itself. And I feel like I should bring you in on the conversation a little bit so you can appreciate what, what we're looking at this morning in this last part of the book of Habakkuk. Um, this has been kind of a unique uh, prophet in the Bible because it's not the prophet speaking directly to the people, it's the prophet speaking to God. Usually he's speaking to the people on behalf of God. Right now he's speaking directly to God. He's in a dialogue. The prophet Habakkuk's in a dialogue with God. He's been expressing his complaints, his doubts, bringing his laments to God. God has been answering him, uh, though not always to his full satisfaction. And so we've been watching him interact with God throughout this book, and uh, we get to see this morning where it goes. And for those of you who have been here longer, I, I want to say, let, look at the progress of this book. We began by talking about lament, right? Learning that lost art of lament, that relief valve for the soul where we can go to God with our greatest pains, that we can come to him in a raw yet respectful way. Habakkuk models that for us. And that's part of what faith looks like. And that's the heart of this book is that God is calling his righteous people to live by faith, to live by faith. And we, to do that, need ongoing perspective, but we also need to wait on the Lord. And Habakkuk went on this journey and we've kind of been on a journey with him. We've learned to lament. We're learning to trust. We're getting the perspective we need. But I want you to see this morning that where this will lead like where God designs this to lead. Even the most perplexing situations and the most perplexed hearts can end up with a song if we will let God teach us how to walk with him in the midst of those perplexities. Amen. That's how this book ends. It ends with a prayerful song, a psalm. You can see that in verses, uh, verse one and then in verse 19, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigionoth. And then uh, no one knows what that means, although its same word is used um, in Psalm 7, and it's another 
type of lament. And so there's a good sense that it's a type of lament psalm that's being expressed here. But I love even how the book ends to the choir master with stringed instruments. And I think you'll agree with me that by the end of this, you'll go, yeah, strings. That sounds about right. Put it to strings. This is a beautiful, beautiful uh, piece of poetry here, this song that's meant to be sung. And um, we don't know a lot about these musical terms that are used like shikyonoth, but we do know what note that this song is meant to be sung in. We know what key it's meant to be sung in. The key of F. Faith. That's about as much music as I know. Philip's just like, <laughs> Philip, one of our musicians is like, tell us. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. But I do know that faith is laced throughout this entire book. And that is what makes these songs so beautiful and you notice that last little bit, which is part of the reason why I wanted to preach on this book in the first place, was to get to verses 17 through 19. So I've been patient, uh, and here we are today. But it's like, that's the kind of thing that can be on the heart of one who gets perspective as God gives it. On the heart of one who's willing to walk by faith, even in the midst of perplexities. Who's willing to lift the relief valve of the soul, to talk to God, even when our hearts want to run from him. This is such a beautiful, beautiful book and ending to it. And uh, this is where we're going to go this morning. Two simple points. We're going to look at the root of faith and the fruit of faith. Remember, the whole book is about the righteous living by faith. So we want to talk about the root of faith, right, and how it's meant to be nourished. And then we're going to talk about the fruit of faith and what comes from a well-nourished faith. So the root and the fruit of and uh, looking at the, the, the root, we're going to be looking at the bulk of the psalm. We're going to be looking at 1 through uh, 16, or 1 through 15, sorry. So let's start by getting our bearings, uh, picking up in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. This is really the heart of the prayer, this prayerful psalm that's coming out. And this is going to drive the rest, the rest of the psalm in so many ways. You notice he says, as the heart of his prayer, revive it, right? Oh Lord, I've heard the report of you and of your work. Oh Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. Revive what? What's he asking God to revive? The work, right? I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. Revive this works, this work. It's talking about the ways that God has rescued his people in the past. The report, he's saying, look, I'm not an eyewitness, but I've heard of what you have done in the past, right? I've heard about it. I'm in awe of what you have done in the past. And so what he's saying here is the work you have done in the past that I've heard all about, I grew up hearing about it, right? The work you've done in the past, do it again, Lord. Do it again, Lord. That's the heart cry. You did it in their day. You did it in days gone by. Do it in our day. Or to put it one more way, you've showed up before, Lord, would you show up again in a timely way? Now, for us here. 
And so that's, that's the heart of the prayer. Revive it. Another way of capturing it with Habakkuk's own words, when he says, revive it, he's saying, in wrath, remember mercy. Do you see that? What a powerful prayer. In wrath, remember mercy. What has God told him is going to happen? The Chaldeans are coming, right? The Babylonians are being raised up in part as a judgment on Judah for wandering from God and going astray and living like the nations, right? And so he's saying in wrath, there's going to be punishment, but in punishment, in judgment, remember mercy. That's the pattern you see uh, throughout the Bible. This, in fact, uh, one biblical scholar wrote a book on biblical theology and and he titled it, God's glory in salvation through judgment. God's glory in salvation through judgment. Because he noticed this kind of cycle that happens throughout it. God gets glory as he shows mercy through judgment. In wrath, remember mercy. Revive it, Lord. You've done it before. In wrath, you've remembered mercy. Would you do it again, Lord? That's the heartbeat of this prayer. And another way to look at a a cross-reference here to to help us think about where this is headed. Psalm 85, verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? That's Psalm 85, verse 6. That's what he's wanting so bad. We want to rejoice in you, Lord. We need you to do a fresh work in our day. And so what he's going to do then in the rest of this section, verses 3 through 16, is that he is going to reflect on God's past acts of salvation, right? So he prays, what you've done before, would you do it again, Lord? And then he starts thinking about engaging his heart on the very types of things that he's heard a report about. He starts thinking about God's past acts of salvation. And so we're going to reflect with Habakkuk in these moments. And this is such an important section in uh, this, uh, this chapter. So what we're going to see, and uh, I realize if you're like me, the first time you hear some of this prophetic poetry, your mind just goes, oh, what's he talking about? You know, because it's just hard, you know, if you're not used to some of the imagery and he's pulling imagery from all over the place and, and the poetry, the pictures he's painting are meant to, you know, be better than a thousand words as it were. And so he's, he's really trying to paint a picture for us. And so it might help you if I can just tell you some of the things that he's trying to paint and then you can kind of see it as we go through the poetry. But what, what he's picturing here and by and large is God as an almighty warrior, right? This divine warrior, he's got his horse and chariot, bow, arrows, spear, the whole nine, right? He's outfitted as a divine warrior and he is marching throughout the earth to save his people. For example, look at verses 12 and 13. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. And so it's describing God as this mighty warrior, and it's really highlighting God's power, the power that he has shown as he's delivered his people in the past. He's depicted here as marching, threshing, crushing, piercing, trampling, and ultimately filling the earth with praise. 
So his power is highlighted, and so is the process. You know, this process that it goes through. We're seeing lightning striking, mountains shaking, waters scattering, and people are trembling as God goes to the earth, marching out in salvation of his people. So a lot of the imagery is just is bringing that out. Um, and through that imagery, it's showing that God, as a mighty warrior fighting on behalf of his people, has showed up in the past. And I think if you really tease out the language, you'll see that it kind of draws on three points in Israel's history. In other words, you could summarize it like this. God, you have shown up in the past. You showed up in the days of Moses. You showed up in the days of Joshua. You showed up in the days of, ju- of the judges. You showed up in our slavery. You showed up in our wanderings. You showed up when we moved into the land. And even after that, when we screwed up, you showed up again and delivered us. So show up again, Lord. In wrath, remember mercy. So I think that gives you, that's like a good summary, I think, of what, what's in this passage. So let's, let's read it and pay attention to some of the language. And we're meant to stand in awe. And as we reflect on this, we're meant to say, you've done it before. Lord, you can do it again. God came from Teman, and, and Teman means south, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. That's meant to make us think back to the region of Sinai from God starting in the south where they're in slavery, and he's going to come up north, and he's going to lead his people ultimately to the promised land and seek to keep them there. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Everybody's hearing about this God who delivers his people. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, like lightning coming off from his hands. And there he veiled his power. I think pictures of Sinai, right? You're going to see trembling mountains, flashes of lightning. The people are trembling at the, ba- trembling at the base of the mountain. We're meant to just be in awe of who God is. These things really happen in history. And he's reflecting back on it, going, this is our God. This is the God who saves. You showed up in Moses' day, right? Because Moses was leading the people of Israel. But ultimately, it was God that was leading his people, or out of Egypt, I'm sorry, leading people out of Egypt. Verse five, before him were pestilence and plagues followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth and looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low His were the everlasting ways. It's interesting. He kind of has a way of bouncing back and forth with imagery of like Sinai things happening in Egypt. And then he's going to, he's going to jump all over. It's almost like his heart is a little bit like one of those, um, oh, what are those old game pinball machines, right? His heart is a little bit like the pinball that's getting bounced around and he's trying to get up there, you know, um, but he's doing, he's just grabbing onto, he's wanting to get to all these different spots in history where God has showed up. And, uh, and ultimately, he's wanting to say, God, get me there. Show up in our day. And uh, so picking up then, I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian trembling. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? Like, was he mad at the rivers and the sea? We think rivers, I think, we think Jordan getting split, Right? We think the Red Sea being parted, right? Was he mad at the river or the sea? 
No, he was acting powerfully on behalf of his people to bring them where he wanted them to be, to bring them salvation. He says, when you rode on your horses and on your chariot of salvation, see all this warrior language, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for more arrows, Selah, for your, you split the earth with rivers, the mountains you saw writhe, and raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted up its, ha- its hands on high, the sun and moon stood still, you, does that ring a bell? Joshua's day, fighting the battle, and the Lord causes the sun to stand still so that the battle could be finished on that day. And who ultimately fought that battle? The Lord, even the sun in its, in its course is obeying the Lord. So this is God acting in power. And so he's reflecting on things of past. And he's going, yeah, Joshua's day. Look how you showed up and brought victory there. Just grabbing on to another thing. And then we pick up. Again in verse 11, at the light of your arrows as they sped in the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out. Why? For the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying bare the th- from thigh to neck. Now, that uh, description, laying him bare from thigh to neck, that's not typically my description of a complete uh, victory, but I'm going to go with it. That's, that's how he's describing it here. From thigh to neck, like absolutely complete. And notice that language, you crush the head of the house of the wicked. Does that sound familiar? Genesis 3.15, the crushing of the head of the serpent. This is God. He showed up. God said he was going to show up. He has show up. He, God said that he would show up, and he is showing up. And he has showed up. He's going to show up again and again and again. So we get this language. Laying him bare from thigh to neck. Complete victory is what God's going to bring. You pierced with his, arrow, um, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. These who are coming out against your people. Remember, you reap what you sow. He's taking their own arrows, putting them on his bow, shooting them back at them, and taking down their enemies who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor and seek it. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. That kind of makes me think of um, after uh, Exodus 15, after they were brought out of the land of Egypt and the waters closed on the enemy and uh, the bodies are floating in the water, and they're standing victorious on the other side, and then all of a sudden a song breaks out. That's a little bit of what he's reminiscing about here. Another song just going, Lord, you showed up. You showed up in Moses' day. You showed up in Joshua's day. You showed up in the day of Judges. You took down the leaders of these peoples. You rescued us. And so the divine warrior has shown up, and he has showed up again and again and again. And we get to verse 16. I hear, right? I've heard the report of how you showed up in the past, and now I hear about what you're going to do in bringing, raising up the Chaldeans, raising up, raising up an entire empire that's going to be destructive. So he says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble 
to come upon people who invade us. So in other words, I know, I know that Babylon is going to come and it's going to be horrific. I tremble at the thought of it, yet in my trembling, I trust. In my trembling, I trust that as wrath is poured out through Babylon, that you are going to bring salvation for your people. In wrath, I'm confident, Lord, you are going to remember mercy. As you showed up before, I'm trusting that you're going to show up again. Do you see? This is where, this is how he's thinking um, in the psalm. And this is what leads to not just a psalm, but like a high point in the psalm at the very end. And so I want us to really think about this. Um, slow down for a moment and think about Habakkuk's prayer. Okay? He's saying, in the midst of years, revive it. Do another act, mighty act of salvation again in our day. In wrath, remember mercy. Every past act of salvation recorded for us in Scripture, recorded for us in the Old Testament, was pointing forward to a more ultimate act of salvation. If this is the cycle, God's glory shown in salvation through judgment, God saving his people in the midst of judgment, and this heart cry has been answered over and over again, in wrath, remember mercy, in wrath, remember mercy, in wrath, remember mercy. And all these acts of salvation that God has brought, they're many, right? They're all pointing to a more ultimate act of salvation. Can you think of where the ultimate answer to this prayer would be seen? In wrath, remember mercy. Can you think of another time where a divine warrior went out to battle for the salvation of his people? Where a warrior was willing to take the highest ground, to take the hill that we couldn't take. Behold your divine warrior slain for you on Calvary's hill. He was trampled upon, pierced through, crushed. The sky went black. The earth shook. The curtain split in two like the sea. He showed up again. God showed up again. And this is the report that is going out in our day to all the nations that a divine warrior has fought for a people. He has come to save a people. God has heard the cry. In wrath, remember mercy. But it wasn't just for some temporary act of deliverance. Like in the day of Judges, you remember all those cycles? Right, you could put little arrows with little cycles uh, you know, in your margin in the book of Judges. Because even in that book, he just, right, they go astray. Right? God sends a deliverer. They cry out for mercy. God sends a deliverer. They're delivered. Oh, then they go astray. And this is the cycle that goes over and over again. But what is, the, what is going to stop that cycle of man? It's, it's going to be an ultimate deliverer coming. All the judges pointed forward to that day. Joshua, as a warrior, pointed for that day. And actually, interestingly enough, this is a bit of an aside, but I think it fits the context here. Um, we're picturing a divine warrior going out to fight for his people. If you go back to the book of Joshua, 
And uh, you don't have to turn there now, but um, actually, maybe it will be fun. Turn there. Joshua, I, want, I think it's chapter 5. I'm going off of memory right now. I just thought this was a powerful connection for me this week. Okay, Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. So the people of Israel are coming into the land. God, their warrior is going out to fight for them. And um, look what gets confronted at the very beginning of this battle. Like for them to have the promised land. This is what he's confronted with. When Joshua, so Joshua is the leader of the people of Israel after Moses. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. (laughs) But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Do you recognize that language? Take off the sandals of your feet. Where did that happen last? Yeah, Moses burning bush when he met Yahweh, right? And so we get this picture here of God as a divine warrior, or you could say it's either a theophany, like a preappearance of God, or a Christophany, like a preappearance of Christ. And I just think it's powerful when we're getting this prophetic portrayal of a divine warrior coming out, and I'm pictured Christ in his pre-incarnate form showing up and being like, yeah, your warrior is here. Your warrior's here, and he is going to fight for his people. This is ultimately going to be his victory. And you, my boy Joshua, are standing on holy ground. Please remove your shoes, right? And I think we're on holy ground when we stop and look at the prophet Habakkuk reciting some of this, these histories of God's mighty acts, and he's going, God has shown up again and again and again. And the report that's going out our day is, a divine warrior has come. He has fought for his people. He has died for his people to bring a more permanent victory and to leave a more permanent song in the mouths of his people. And so he showed up again in the fiercest wrath, like the wrath poured out on Christ on the cross. We met the deepest mercy and the most permanent mercy that could be shown. What's the response to this? that God has answered this prayer, how should someone respond? The prophets told us, the apostles instructed us, he's calling everyone everywhere to repent and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to take off their shoes and acknowledge Jesus Christ, the divine warrior, as the only one that can actually win the victory, the only one that can get them into the promised land. That's who we meet in this text. That's the ultimate prayer to in wrath, remember mercy. Like Habakkuk, we're not eyewitnesses to that. 
but we stand in awe because we've heard the report and we walk by faith. Now, one question I want to ask and I want us to think about this morning is this. Why reflect on the past work of God? Why would we take the time to reflect on the past work of God? Why would Habakkuk do this? I mean, it takes up the bulk of this song, right? Him just reflecting on what God has done and showing up in days gone by. I think the answer to that question is, like water to roots, our faith needs to soak up God's acts of deliverance. That's why they are there, right? These acts of deliverance are there. They're written down so that we would soak them up so that we would remember what God's done in days gone by and look forward with confidence to what he can do in the days ahead. And just to give an illustration, I want to work with that, that roots analogy here, okay? So we're talking about the root of faith. The root of faith needs to be nourished on past acts of salvation. And so if you can picture a root system, okay? I know not all root systems are exactly the same, but picture uh, a common root system where you have like the tap root coming down right? And then, and I just, I love this diagram. I almost printed one off, like hundreds of them, so that I could hand them out today and give you a homework assignment. But I'll let you do your own artwork, but I still want to give you this assignment. But get the imagery first, okay? So you got this big taproot going down. So you're getting this image of what's going on under the, the surface, okay? You got this huge taproot that's going down, off of the taproot, you have these, these kind of primary roots. They're, they're thicker. They're not nearly as thick as the taproot, but they're big. They're coming off of that. They absorb a lot of water, right? And then of those, you have secondary roots coming, and then you have these little hair-like rootlets. Can you kind of picture it in your mind's eye? The taproot, and then like bigger roots, and then to smaller roots, down to the smallest hair-like structures. And so I'm asking the question, why reflect on the work of God? And I'm going to say, it's because the past works of God are meant to nourish the root of our faith. Our faith is meant to just soak up the works of God. That's what Habakkuk's doing here. You know, think of where his heart has been. Think of where his mind has been, right? As we've been reading through this book, he's been in a tough place. This is one perplexed prophet. And he's praying, in wrath, remember mercy. Boy, I better take some time to think about how God's done that in the past. He is soaking the root of his faith, the roots of his faith, in God's act, past acts of deliverance. So by way of application, we are called to nourish the roots of our faith in our lives. And it's an active thing. We have to actually slow down and think about what God has done in the, fa- in the past, right? We have to latch on to these things. And so God wants to encourage you with this. This is the big thing on my heart to share with you this morning is that God really wants to encourage and nourish. And he wants his people to have a well-watered, well-watered faith. And so you can think about how um, this benediction that I've given many times before, Romans 15, verses 4 and 5, and how important faith is when it says, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, or in believing, or as you put your faith in him, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. How are we going to end up with a song? Well, when our, faith, when our faith is really well nourished, right? When our faith is well nourished, there's peace and joy that sprout up from that. We're going to see this as this text unfold, unfolds. But we're meant, our faith is just thirsty. Like the trees are this year, 
so little rain till the last week, all right? They're just so thirsty. Give me something. To drink. Your faith is like that, saying, I'm thirsty. Give me something to drink. Quit starving me. This need not be a year of drought. Give me something to feed on. And so that imagery of the root system is actually, I think, a really practical way you can think about how to feed your faith. So think about it this way. What is the ultimate act of deliverance that has been brought in your life? Salvation, Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, right? So the tap root, right? Did that happen in the past? Yeah. That's why we're going to take the Lord's Supper today and we're going to remember what the Lord has done for us, right? And so we take time, that tap root, to drink up with that massive root as much as we possibly can, remembering that act of deliverance, what Jesus has done for our souls and how he absorbed wrath, right? So that we can drink in mercy. So take time to reflect on what Christ has done. We often starve our faith because we miss even the most obvious things, like this greatest of all acts of salvation. So from our vantage point in history, we're looking back on the cross as the mightiest act of deliverance. So that's your tap root. What about those, those primary roots that come out off of that? Think about the other big acts of salvation, right? They're not the ultimate one. They're not the cross, but think about some of those other ones, right? Like think about um, the exodus. You go back to that. That's God rescuing his people. That's God acting. We're meant to go back to a moment like exodus. We're meant to go back to times when God's people's backs were against the wall. We're meant to go back to the time of judges and see how God lifted his people out of it. So any act of salvation in the Old Testament um, is fair game to soak up for your faith. And you could think of even the smaller ones that showed up, like through the Bible. Some of the brothers mentioned this morning, like just thinking of even, even when Peter was walking in water and he sinks, right? That little rescue and pulling him up. I mean, there's just too many to count almost in the scriptures, but they're there for the nourishment of our faith. So grab on to these other primary, secondary acts of rescue and salvation, but take it one step further, okay? How has God not just showed up in history, how has God showed up in, showed up in your story? What are the things he has done in your life? If you're like me, sometimes you just feel ashamed that you're like, I am so, I, I just have so much unbelief in my heart that he just did that two weeks ago and I already forgot it because I'm so busy focused on this problem, you know? And this problem, this present problem, should be triggering my mind like, oh, I need, to, I need some nourishment here. I'm gonna go back and remember not just the mighty things that he has done, but even the small, right, those hair-like roots that go out, those are all the little things that God has done in your life. Now take this seriously because I, don't, I could speak till I'm blue in the faith, but unless you actually take your roots and put them into these things, you're not going to be nourished, and that's otherwise I'm wasting my breath. God has showed up for you. We were talking in Sunday school this morning and talking about how to help one another when we're struggling with doubts. You know, and some of you shared like how God had used other believers, you know, in your life to help you in that time. That's an act of deliverance. That's something God did. That's something God supplied. Remember it. Remember it. I remember times I was reflecting on this. Uh, one way this worked out for me practically is, okay, I've preached quite a few times now, okay? But it's amazing how many lapses I have week to week and go, oh, can I really do it again? 
you know? But it's this kind of growing sense of God has shown up in the past. I've watched him do it. He's going to show up again, right? Or I think back of times where I've been discouraged. I remember a few sermons where I was just really discouraged after it. And it, it was just like God just put it into Larry's mind. Go, dis- go encourage Pastor Brandon. And Larry just comes and gives me a word of encouragement. It just lifted me up. That was a mini act of deliverance that God used Larry to do. I could look at this church and I could write a book on how many ways God has used you in my life as a church, right? If we take the time, it would really be good for our faith. Put those little hair-like roots out. Think about what God has done. And then move back to the bigger things he's done through history. And then never take your eyes off of the main thing that God has done for your soul, which he's given you his son so that you can drink and be satisfied for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to have a well-nourished faith. And this is what Habakkuk's modeling for us here, how to drink deep so that we can be well-nourished. So what might we expect when roots of faith are well-nourished? We know this by nature, don't we? What happens when the roots of an apple tree are really well-nourished? Fruit, okay? So let's turn to our second point here, the fruit of faith, okay? If the root of faith, we're talking about nourishing it with past acts of salvation, well, that leads to the fruit of faith, which I would say in general is a joyful anticipation of future acts. Like just a joyful sense of he's going to show up again. That's, that's where it leads us. And so Habakkuk's joyful anticipation of future salvation, and this is what we see, um, he said he was trembling as he's thinking about the wrath that's going to be poured out, but he's also anticipating, he's anticipating rescue. He's anticipating wrath, but he's also expecting mercy. And so that's why he can say in verses 17 through 19, I'm going to read it with no interruption, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, and the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And I want you, have you as you hear that beauty there, I want to drive in something for our skeptical hearts, okay? Like, oh, good for Habakkuk in his nice little song, right? He sang this before the resolution came. This was his song before he saw the deliverance that was going to come. This is what a well-nourished faith can do. The deliverance isn't even there yet, but I'm anticipating it, and I'm so confident it's going to happen that... There's this fruit, this fruit, a joyful anticipation of God showing up again. But just get that. The resolution didn't happen yet. Same in Job's day when we hear Job say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And someone could be like, well, look how good it turned out for Job. Yeah, but he didn't know that when he said the Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be his name. Those are the words of faith. That's supernatural. That's supernatural. And that's what God wants to work in the hearts of his people. So 
This resolution didn't happen yet. And doesn't this sound a little different than chapter one? (laughs) Chapter one, you're like, is this prophet even a believer? You know, because he's lamenting. He's in so much pain. But do you see what happens when we go to God with our pain? And we seek to walk by faith even when we can't see how things are going to come to full resolution. And he gives us slowly but surely more perspective by and by. This is where it ultimately leads. It leads to a song. A well-nourished faith leads to a joyful anticipation of future acts. And so this is the fruit, not of changed circumstances, but of a well-nourished faith. This is huge to get. Usually in our minds, we go, when the circumstances change, you'll see my joy, Lord. Like, well, I hope so. I hope for all of us there'll be extra joy then. What's supernatural is to see the joy before it even changes. The circumstances haven't changed, but there is fruit of a well-nourished faith here. He went from having an exceedingly troubled faith to now having a triumphant faith. From giving God advice on how he should run the world to peacefully trusting that God knows best and putting himself in God's own capable hands. This is a remarkable transformation and this was not just meant to be for Habakkuk. This is meant to be for the people of God in every single age. This is the transformation that can happen as we learn to go to God in our pain and wait upon him for mercy. He goes from being problem-centered to being radically God-centered right here. He bears much fruit in the end here. And I want to highlight three fruits down the home stretch that we see born from a well-nourished root. Okay, so there's three fruits of a well-nourished faith. Number one, contentment in God. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. You want to talk about a tanking economy? Do you think they had reason to worry with Babylon coming? I'm going to ransack everything? That's the context here. Babylon's going to come, and I'm not sure what we're going to eat. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. In other words, contentment says, God is enough. Christ is enough. If I have him for me and with me, Everything else could be stripped away and I have enough. That's why Job could say, the Lord gives and he takes away. And boy, did he take away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. So he sings in contentment. He's anticipating Babylonian invasion and it makes him tremble. But he's also anticipating another act of timely mercy. So it makes him trust. So he comes with this trembling trust and he's saying, the Lord is enough for me. And this is probably a loss of epic proportions, you know, economically speaking. But even though he's not sure what they're going to eat, he's learned to trust God no matter what, which is our battle, isn't it? To learn to trust God no matter what. And the encouraging thing for us is that though this is not necessarily just downloaded into us where we just always perfectly trust God all the time in all circumstances, It is something that can be learned, right? 
the godliest people throughout the ages have learned this. We just watched Habakkuk learn this throughout this book. The Apostle Paul was another one who learned that. Remember that? Philippians chapter 4, 11 to 13. I've learned in whatever circumstances I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound, right? Whether there's plenty or hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through Christ. If I have Christ, I have enough, okay? It's the key to contentment is to have, to have him and to be able to say, He's enough for me. He's enough for me. So when the root of faith is nourished, contentment can flourish. What about the second fruit? And this is the most obvious one in this section. Verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Right? Contentment says, Jesus is enough. Joy says, He's mine. He's actually mine. I can claim him as my own, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He's he's my God. He's the God who brings salvation to me. And this is maybe one of the most perplexing, one of the strangest experiences in the Christian life is we not only have contentment, he's enough for me right now. Things are getting stripped away, but he's enough for me but to have joy. One of the times that this was illustrated most powerfully for me, there's been different times, but probably one of the most powerful, is I'll never forget when our older brother Bryce died, being at his casket, sitting there alone, reflecting on this loss that was just absolutely devastating. And I felt the strangest feelings in my heart. I felt such profound grief. I felt like I could just, I didn't have enough tears to weep along with my family. But I felt an overwhelming sense of joy. Not joy in the circumstance, but joy in the God who's undergirding me in the circumstance. Like, he felt like he was enough to me and he was mine. And he was there with me more personally than anybody was at the time. And I felt this strange joy. I was sorrowful, no doubt, but always rejoicing. This joy, it's supernatural. But the point of the text this morning is that it comes from a well-watered faith, you know? I wish I could say my heart always responded that way. I thank God it did in that moment. But there had been countless other ones where it's just like, these roots need some attention, right? They need something to drink right now. I'm starving them. But this is where the fruit of joy comes from. It comes from faith in God. There's no shortcuts. Joyful heart, brothers and sisters, listen to this wisdom from Proverbs. A joyful heart is a continual feast. When our hearts are joyful, it's just this feast. Remember writing this line for my kids based on this storybook song, like the same melody, but it goes something like this. Yes, I want this for you, that your hearts be joyful. It's bound to refresh you now and for eternity. Like, I want you to be joyful because it's going to refresh you over and over again. And this joy of the Lord is our strength and that leads us to our next point in that um, another fruit of a uh, well-watered faith is strength. Verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. 
He makes me tread on high places. You could kind of boil this strength down to this. With this picture of the deer treading on high places, you picture going up on the rocky crags and you're just going, he's going to fall. Like, nope, he's just enjoying bouncing around up there, climbing to new heights. When our faith is well watered, one of the fruits of that faith is strength, spiritual strength. And you could say it like this. He gives us stability of soul and agility of soul. And both of those are really, really sweet. Stability of soul just means we're not easily shaken, right? We can stand. We have good footing, right? But agility, boy, can we move? And even better, we can climb. We can climb to new heights. And this is, this is the beauty of a well-watered faith is he takes us to heights that we never could have experienced. We want to enjoy more of God. This strength that he gives as we trust him allows us to enjoy supernatural strength and to enjoy glorious heights and views that we wouldn't seen before in the valleys of unbelief. And so we trust him. We've been, as it were, on a journey that's meant to end in a song. And I think we can take a lot of heart that even though you, like me, may struggle to get here, you know, this can be our heart cry this morning. Lord, you've showed up in the past for me, for others, for your people throughout history. You've showed up for me in Christ. Lord, help me to believe that. Stay there a while. Watch less football this afternoon and spend more time letting your roots soak in ultimate realities. And watch the kind of fruit that comes from it. Because God wants to put a song in your mouth. In this life, right? Jesus says, my joy I give to you. He wants to give us that joy as we abide in him. But I think the real deep encouragement is that we are going to sing for eternity. There's going to be a day that comes when we're not going to have to be taught to sing. We're not going to have to be taught the song. We're not going to have to learn the lever lament. We're going to break it once and for all, throw it away. You don't have to lament anymore. There's nothing to lament about. That day is coming. And here's the encouraging thing. There's one more great act of deliverance coming. Do you know what it is? The second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what's going to be poured out on that day? Wrath. If we think about the wrath that's going to be poured out on the day, it would make us tremble. But if we have our faith in Christ, we can say, in wrath, remember mercy. We are going to experience final salvation on that day. We will experience mercy that we will not be able to help but sing about. Some of you, they're like, I can't hold the tune. Some of you guys, you're like, I don't sing. I think God, most of the guys do sing in our church, but every single one of you is going to be singing on that day when that final greatest act of salvation comes and it's going to come. We tremble, but we tremble in trust. Come Lord Jesus, let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to make stuff up to nourish our faith. You have acted in history. You've preserved these reports in your word so that our roots can be sunk down deep. Lord, we're thankful that you've allowed us to hear the report 
not of just of these other lesser acts of salvation, but of the ultimate act of salvation in your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we're so thankful that you gave us the grace to repent of our sins and believe upon your son, to sink our taproot down deep into Christ. We're so thankful for the ways you have watered us. And Lord, we pray, would you water us again? Lord, forgive us for erring in blind unbelief. Forgive us for neglecting our roots of faith that just need nourishment when you've given such ample provision. Lord, I pray that you would make your people like trees planted by streams of living water. Lord, I pray that your people would have a well-watered faith. Lord, I pray that it would be said like the prophet Jeremiah said, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. May it be so, Lord. But we acknowledge, Lord, that our hearts are deceitful. We run to other things thinking that they're going to nourish our roots. Instead, they kill our root. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us from running to other things to find this nourishment, to find life. We're running to idols to revive us when they don't. They leave us empty and dry and barren and fruitless. So Lord, we turn our hearts to you afresh today, asking you to teach us how to walk by faith. This faith that so pleases you, Lord. This faith that so honors you. God, we believe, help our unbelief. Overcome it, Lord. Because Lord, we want to bear the fruit of a well-watered faith. Lord, we're so thankful that we can say, by faith, you're enough, Lord. You are enough for us. Even if our circumstances don't change, you are enough for us. Oh Lord, help every one of your people to be able to say that from the heart. Work these miracles in our hearts, Lord. Thank you that we can have joy, not just for eternity, but now in this life. Real substantial joy. Oh Lord, help us to linger long enough to let joy bear fruit in our souls. And Lord, I pray that you'd strengthen your people. I pray that you'd make their feet like the deer's. Make their souls more stable in strength, but also more agile, Lord, to be able to climb new heights with you. And for those who are down in the valley of unbelief right now, Lord, I pray that you'd grant repentance and a fresh start today to live by faith. And even if they need to start at the beginning of the story, lamenting, May they come to you, Lord. May they get the watering that they need. And may you, Lord, get the glory because it is you who gives the growth. In Jesus' name, amen.